theyeshiva.net. Thank you, Rabbi Mendy. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. We have a beautiful uh, tone in the community. Thanks to our dear friend Dan. And uh, I was happy to be able to stay here this Sunday morning to address what is maybe the most important topic, with all due respect, I know you chose the topics of Shabbos, but it was maybe the most important topic, and that is uh, our children, our tomorrow, our future, our destiny. (coughs) They tell a story about a rabbi who would always preach from the sermon about how you have to be sensitive to children and attentive to children and uh, communicate with children in a refined, subtle, loving and present, if sometimes firm way. And one day, they paved his alley. And you know how children are when they see a new fresh pavement? They want to make sure to leave their imprint on this world. So, a bunch of kids on the block got together, and everybody, of course, imprinted their name, and their family name, and their greatest hero, and their celebrities, etc. And the rabbi comes out on the porch, and he sees what's going on, and he loses it. He begins hollering and screaming, you're a bunch of brats, you're sick people, you belong behind bars, you're worse than animals. He was, whoo, his wife hears her husband screaming. She runs out, she says, what's going on? She says, take a look. What they did in the concrete, take a look what they did here. This new paved cemented alleyway. She says, but I don't understand you. Every Shabbos, every Saturday, you get up at the pulpit and you wax eloquently about speaking with sensitivity to children, even if you have to chastise them. You speak about how you have to love children. What are you hollering like a freak? Your mama's going crazy. He looks at her and he says, Honey, listen, I love children in the abstract, not in the concrete. (laughs) (laughs) It's easy to talk about uh, education in the abstract. (laughs) I'm sure some of you very dedicated parents have read books and gone to seminars and checked out websites and read (coughs) essays and articles, people send you links. It's easy to talk about education in the abstract, about somebody else's children. It's far more challenging to talk about education in the concrete as hell breaks loose in your kitchen or your dining room and your living room and you're desperately trying to finish your day to to no avail. And Excuse me, I just, I'm having some mucus, forgive me. (coughs) I apologize. And so, it's really refreshing to be able to tune in to some of the Jewish perspectives on education. When people want to wonder and ask the question, How did the Jewish people survive for so long? We're around for 4,000 years under very difficult circumstances. Thank God our sojourn in America has been a blessing. 
but that's a fraction of Jewish history. Jews, most Jews have arrived to America in the last century, some in the previous century. Some of you may be third generation, fourth generation, fifth, it's very hard to find more than five, six generations. That's a century or a little more. We've been around for a few thousand years before that and expelled from almost every single country we were ever in besides the United States. During the Civil War there was a story, but that's not for now. And, uh, and Australia. <laughs> I think no Jews were not expelled from Australia. <laughs> Everywhere else was. And nonetheless, the Jewish people have survived, and not survived, thrived. What was the secret of it? The secret of it goes back to a scene in the Hebrew Bible, in the Torah. The moment the Jews leave Egypt. When the Jews leave Egypt, which was 3,330 years ago, Moses gives them their first speech. And it's recorded in the Bible, in the Torah. It was actually read last Sabbath in synagogues across the world. And Moses speaks to them the day that they experienced freedom and they became emancipated and liberated as a people. And that speech is always a faithful speech. What would you say if you just liberated a nation of a few million slaves who are now on a journey towards independence freedom and liberty what's the message you would perhaps expect moses to get up and say guys free at last free at last let's make a toast perhaps he would remember all those who died in the search and the quest for freedom and are not here to watch its realization but their descendants of it perhaps he would speak about as nelson mandela's biography the long walk to freedom the struggles that it took the sacrifice that were necessary sacrifices that were necessary etc those would all be beneficial messages or another message would be guys it's time to party it's time to dance it's time to celebrate or in the good jewish tradition about the meaning of all holidays they tried to kill us we won let's go eat <laughs> that's what moses could have done which he does to be sure he calls it matzah let's eat matzah but his message actually to the jewish people is a little counterintuitive it's the day they were set free after 210 years in slavery 86 years egypt was a concentration camp there was a program of genocide male children male infants with with plunged into the nile the men were subjected to absolute slave labor this was a program of genocide not so different than what the jewish people saw 70 years ago although in a different milieu in a different culture in a different style what's the message the day you're free moses says two words vihigadeta levincha make sure you share this story with your children and i want you to designate every day a few moments to share the story with your children and i want you to designate seven days out of the year called passover that's dedicated to sharing the story and don't just share the story when you share the story i want you to replicate the food we ate when we went out 
which we call stale matzah. And if you ever tasted matzah, it tastes like it's 3,300 years old. And even though most Jews are to say to eat the matzah, they say, whoa, the matzah is wonderful this year. Sure, serve it at your son's bar mitzvah. I still did not see a self-respecting Jewish mother have on the menu of your bat mitzvah, bas mitzvah, matzah. Under horrible circumstances, it becomes delicious. Why would he tell this to the people right when they experienced freedom? Because Moses understood the greatest celebrations die if they're not communicated to the next generation. Moses said, you're all on a high. You're flying high. You're going crazy. We're all in ecstasy. We're free. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Life moves on. Tell it to your children. Tell them their story. Tell them where they come from. Explain to them the meaning of freedom. Explain to them the gift of freedom. Explain to them the dangers of oppression and abuse. Explain to them the fundamentals of Judaism, of seeing the divine image within every single human person and actualizing it in daily life. But I don't want you to preach. Because preaching doesn't work. Preaching puts people to sleep. I want you to eat the matzah. I want you to eat the bitter herbs. I want your children and you to be able to experience it in some concrete physical way, which is with the focus of Judaism on two things, education and mitzvahs. Education is about imparting the information to the next generation so they know who they are and where they come from and what is the meaning of their identity. And mitzvahs is the practical realization of values in concrete ways. Jews put a mezuzah on a door, they eat matzah, they light candles, they put on tefillin, they celebrate Shabbat, they make Kiddush, whatever the mitzvah is, it's bringing an idea into very concrete stuff. Now here is a reality, I'll tell you a very interesting story. In 1937, uh, there was the foreign minister of England was a man named Lord Peel, P-E-E-L. And Lord Peel was in Palestine, it was called Palestine at the time, it was under the British mandate, Israel today. And Lord Peel made then a famous Peel committee about what should be the future of Palestine. This is 1937, 10, 11 years before the State of Israel was established and before the Holocaust. One of the people sitting on the panel was David Ben-Gurion, who was the head of the, of the Jewish agency at the time and later would be the first Prime Minister of Israel. And uh, Peel asked Ben-Gurion, where is the kushan? You know what kushan is? Kushan is an Arab word, Arabic word which means a deed. Your house, you have a deed to your house, kushan. He said, what is the kushan of the Jewish people to Israel? Where do you have a deed? You have been away from this place for 2,000 years. The Arabs have, they have houses here, but you're not here. You're all from Poland, from Galicia, from Ukraine, from Belarus, from Russia, from Germany, from Romania. Remember, most Jews lived in Eastern Europe at the time. Today, there's 7 million Jews in there. Today, there's 6.5 million Jews in Israel. It's amazing. But in 1937, there were 400,000 Jews in Israel. So Ben-Gurion pointed to the Tanakh, to the Bible. And he said, this is our Kushan. This is our deed. The Bible, read it. You all believe in it. You're all Christians. This Bible says 700 times that God gave this land to the people and we have been here already for thousands of years. We were exiled, but this is our land. So Lord Pill didn't expect the Bible to be the Kushan. Usually you have a deed, a signed deed. He said this. This is the best Kushan. It was a brilliant, uh, a brilliant insight of Ben-Gurion. And then Ben-Gurion looked. 
around and he said, I want to ask a question. How many children, how many children know the day the Mayflower arrived to its destination? How many children know how many people were on it? How many children know what they ate on the Mayflower? People look, there's a few historians know these details. He says, now go to the Jewish people and ask them 3,300 years ago, what day did the Jewish people leave Egypt? What did they eat when they left Egypt? Which country did they leave from? Where did they arrive to? How many people were there? And anybody with a basic Hebrew school education will be able to give these answers. This is what Moses understood. He understood all values, all dreams, all visions are not meaningful if they're not communicated to the next generation of children on a continuous basis so that children understand who they are, where they come from, what story they're carrying, what is the story that has been bequeathed to them so they can bequeath it to others. Any nation that makes its focus on children stays young forever. Most nations have not made their sole focus on children. The focus was on adults. They become old. Because Moses turned the most important focus of Judaism on education on children, we all remain children. That is why the Jewish people remain a young people, a vibrant people. True, sometimes it's in the extreme. There's three mothers in Palm Beach, Florida, taking a stroll. One turns to the other and says, Oi! And the other one says, Oi vey! And the other one says, Oi my God! And the fourth one says, We made up not to talk about the children today. <laughs> and then there's the three elderly women, grandmothers, who speak about the nachas, the pleasure they have from their children. And one says, Ah! My child for my 85th birthday took the whole family on a cruise for a week in the Pacific. Just to honor me for my 85th birthday, he paid for the whole family. And the other mother said, eh, it's nothing, one cruise. My son bought me a beautiful home in the West Coast. I should be able to die and retire in beautiful weather in, um, in Malibu, California. That's, and he paid off the mortgage. That's my son, what he did for me. That's Nachas. The third one says, eh, big deal. One-time payment. He's a rich guy. I have nachas already for 25 years every week. My son goes to a psychoanalyst every single week. <laughs> he spends an hour each week for 25 years. Each session costs him $465. And all he talks about is me. <laughs> That's nachas. So yes, we have all the good Jewish jokes with the Jewish mothers and, and Jewish guilt, etc. I once, met a I once met a psychiatrist in Connecticut, <laughs> a Jewish psychiatrist, and he tells me, so interesting, two boys were here today, a Jewish kid and an Italian kid. The Jewish kid walks in and for an hour he's crying how his mother's a control freak. My mother calls me at night, right, because I'm dorming wherever he is in school. She says, how are you? I say, okay. She says, you're sure? I say, of course I'm sure. You don't sound okay. I said I'm okay, mom. I have a good therapist for you. <laughs> Mommy, I'm okay. I'm fine. 
Do you have food? Do you have a blanket? Do you have a pillow? Do you have the flu? Do you have the stomach virus? Are you getting a stroke? Are you exercising? Are people treating you nicely? Are you taking vitamin D, vitamin C, vitamin B, vitamin A? Do you have enough sunlight? Are you eating too much sugar? Do you make sure to have kale and spinach and soybeans and barley kernels every day for breakfast and dinner? Are you exercising? Are they nice to you? Are you, are you feeling good? Does anybody put you down? Ma, I'm okay, boo! And the mother feels guilty for sending him away, of course. And she cries and she calls her sister and she calls her therapist and she speaks to her yoga instructor, etc. This psychiatrist tells me the Jewish kid leaves, an Italian boy comes in. He sits down and he says, you know, I wish I would have a mother who cares about me. She calls me up at night. She says, how you doing, Tony? I say, good. She says, good. Bye. He's, why doesn't she ask questions? Why doesn't she show interest? So this doctor, his name is Dr. Satinov, he says, you know, if we could only swap mothers. If I could give the Jewish kid the Italian mother, who says, good, boom. And I can give the Italian kid the Jewish mother, they'll be thrilled. And he tells me, both mothers make pasta for dinner. Not you, I know you make healthy food. But both mothers make pasta for dinner. Both teenagers come in, start eating the pasta, and say, it stinks. It's horrible. Who makes such ridiculous food? Both mothers shoot. The Italian mother shoots her kid. The Jewish mother shoots herself. So, of course, his point was, you can swap mothers from today till tomorrow, but the, the grass is always greener at the other side. But all these jokes and humor, which have some truth to them as well, as you know, come from a certain value that dates back to the first speech Moses gave the Jewish people when they left Egypt. Talk to your kids. Bond with your kids. Communicate with your children. Transmit it to them. I'll tell you something that happened in 1946, an incredible moment. As you may know, many parents at the brink of destruction, deposited their children into Christian homes and orphanages. If you were a Jewish mother, father living in Poland, they realized the cities, the, the ghettos are gonna be liquidated, they had a good neighbor. It didn't work in most cases, but it worked in some cases. And the neighbor agreed to take a child, a baby, they could raise him as their own, baptize him. There were hundreds, thousands, they say, of Jewish children who grew up in monasteries, in orphanages, Christian orphanages. Nuns took them in, Christian neighbors took them in. And there was one particular Christian, so there were a few rabbis after the war who went to Christian orphanages to try to bring back Jewish children, back to Israel, back to their families who did survive. Because most parents didn't survive. There was a particular Rabbi Silver from Cincinnati. He was a rabbi in Cincinnati and he traveled to Europe for this purpose. And he went to an orphanage and he met the priest. And he said that a lot of locals, Jews, who lived there said that this orphanage has a lot of Jewish children. And I think it's only right, we're left with, with, with nobody, that we get back our kids and they have families, they have uncles and aunts living in America and Israel. And the priest, who was a little shrewd, and you probably know in the Christian religion, one of the greatest mitzvahs is to have a Jew convert be baptized is one of the greatest sources of salvation the priest says no problem I would be happy just produce photo IDs of the kids 
and that they're Jewish, and I'll give everybody back. Now you go find a photo ID from a kid in Warsaw or Bialystok. It's impossible. <laughs> There's nothing left. No homes, no pictures, nothing. What are you going to do? He says, if you have any photo ID and document, a passport, a birth certificate, whatever it is, no problem, you take them. But Silver had nothing. So he asked the priest, do you mind if I come back during bedtime? During bedtime when you put them to sleep. He says, sure, you can come back. He came back during bedtime. The kids were orphans, they were going to bed. Everybody had their little doll or their little teddy bear, whatever they had, getting into the blanket. You know, bedtime is a very uh, mushy and vulnerable time for children. It's a special time of bounding. The terrorists have finished their work of the day, terrorizing the home. They become angels. They become cute. Tati or mommy gets into bed, sings a lullaby, tells a story. And uh, Rabbi Silver is watching the scene. Now these were kids who were taken when they were three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Now it's been two years later, three years later, four years later, depends when they were taken, 1942, 1943. He stands in the middle of the room and he starts singing this song. Shema Yisrael Adenai Eloheinu Adenai Echad And suddenly Boys and girls start running over. Tata, Mama, in Yiddish, mother, father. And they come on to him, they start embracing him. And each one of those children came back to a family, to the people, to the Jewish people. Because all their memories were forgotten. But this nighttime message that their parents sung with them in the morning, in the evening, when they went to bed, it stayed with them in their subconscious. And when he sung it, the memories emerged and they saw him as a father, as a mother figure. I once told a story in Palm Beach, Florida. And an elderly man, his name is Spalter, gets up and he says he was one of those children. I heard the story when I was young. Somebody said the story. He said he was one of those children who ran over. He lost his parents in Poland. And he was given to a Christian family. And then I understood what Moses meant when he said that three and a half thousand years ago. I want you to tell it to your child. And yet, throughout history, sometimes as parents, we don't always realize the value of identity. We focus very importantly, and this is important to teach our children, we want them to be able to make a good living. We all want our kids to be able to be successful and grow up to be able to fend for themselves and live a good life. And that's critical. But equally important is to teach my children not only how to make a good living, but how to live. There are people who make a good living, but they don't know how to live. And the reason they don't know how to live is they lack the ability of appreciation, gratitude, humility, integrity, meaning, values, and a knowledge of who I am and who I am not. And in a world that is very, very open, and we're glad that it's open because the gift of information is incredible, there is also the challenge, will my child 
know he or she is, and most importantly, feel empowered that his and her life in this world has absolute meaning. Abraham Joshua Heschel said, we live in a generation where more and more people read more and more about less and less. Oscar Wilde said, today people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. There was a bar mitzvah boy who came to his mother and says, mom, I want to speak at my bar mitzvah speech where we come from. And mom says, where do we come from? Huh, we have an unbelievable family history. Tell me about it. And she starts, to, no, no, the beginning, all the way back. Where, do we, where did it begin? Oh, she says, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. On the sixth day, he created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, for some stupid reason, decided to have children. And the rest is history, or actually her story. And then we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. And here we are a few millennia later. Oh, wow. Mommy, that's interesting. He comes to dad. Dad was an enlightened graduate of Oxford University. Dad, where do we come from? Oh, dad says it's been 15.3 billion years. We have evolved. From whom have we evolved? We have evolved from apes. And the apes evolved from monkeys. And the monkeys evolved from other primates. Dad, how did it begin? It began with a primordial chalent of gas and bacteria. <laughs> comes back to his mother and says, Mommy, I want to speak at the Bar Mitzvah where we come from, but I'm very confused. You tell me we come from God, Adam, Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca. Dad tells me we come from apes, monkeys, and bacteria. What am I supposed to say at the Bar Mitzvah? Where do we come from? I'm completely confused. And his mother looks at him straight in the eye and says, David, there's no contradiction. Your father was talking about his side of the family. <laughs> I'm talking about my side of the family. It's completely fine. <laughs> you see, you see, when I look in the mirror, what do I see? We each have two sides of our family. There's your husband's side of the family. <laughs> Full due respect to the men sitting here. And there's the wife's side of the family. But in each of us, there's two sides of the family. And a child needs education to be able to know what to accentuate. I can look in the mirror and see a chimpanzee. You know why? Because the difference between my DNA and a chimp's DNA is minimal. It's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. 98% of our DNA is identical. And therefore, I could look at myself and see myself as an animal. Charles Darwin writes in The Origin of Species that the fundamental ramifications of the theory of evolution is that there's fundamentally no difference between a human and an animal. Those are big words. The basis of Judaism is I should be able to look in the mirror and say I'm not only a mountain of dust, I'm also a ray of infinity. I'm not only a creature which is part of the zoological species, I'm also an ambassador of the divine. I'm an ambassador of love, of light, of hope. I can change the world through one act at a time, through one person at a time. There's a part of me that is invincible. There's a part of me that nobody can cut down. And even if I'm hurt and abused, I have the power to recreate myself and forge my destiny because the soul always remains free like its creator. Such a message for a young boy and young girl in today's world is not luxury, 
it could be the difference between life and death. I speak to a lot of teenagers. Your kids here are young, but they become teenagers sooner than later. And you think, this is fun? Little children, little problems. Big children, different types of problems. I don't want to say big problems. One of the greatest issues we see today in America is depression, despondency, apathy, indifference. Good kid, good family. We're not talking about kids that come from dysfunctional homes where it could be understood. Good families. Smart kids, good looking, handsome. The girls are chasing him. But internally, he's empty. Internally, she feels so insecure. So a funeral the other day, a girl committed, she overdosed, a 17-year-old girl. And there were a few people at the funeral, and her mother at the funeral says, I don't understand. On Facebook, she had 700 friends. Where are they? Go explain to this mother, who was a little naive, that the likes on Facebook are not real relationships. And that a girl who doesn't learn to cherish her true identity and her true self, and it's not about pleasing others and getting validation from others, because then it's a never-ending vicious cycle, but it's about learning that I am a princess due to my innate character because I am a piece of the divine. I am an ambassador of the divine in this world and nothing can take that away from me. For today, these are not luxurious messages, my dear friends. These are messages that are essential to the future, serenity, health of our children. And that is why I find it to be so meaningful and special and moving that a group of parents like yourself understand this and you understand the value and critical importance of the gift you give children when you inculcate them with the values of Judaism, with the values of Torah with the values of mitzvahs that have been bequeathed to us for three and a half thousand years and have proved to become an incredible resource for the survival of a people that has been beaten down again and again. I look at history and I ask a question. Where is the ancient Egyptian empire that lasted a thousand years? Where is the Roman empire? Where is the Greek empire? Where is the Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, Byzantine empires? Where are they? Where is the Pharaoh? Where is Titus? Where is Haman? Where is Turkomedei? Where is Eichmann, Himmler, Rosenberg, Stalin? Where is Caliglia, Pompeii, and Vespasian? Where are they? The answer is in Wikipedia. <laughs> You could put in their name and Wikipedia will give you a beautiful description or a gory description of their life and death. And now I ask another question. Where are the Jewish people? That little tiny nation that all of them tried to destroy. And the answer is, we created Wikipedia. <laughs> we are the one who write their entries. We edit their entries. You can go and edit Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Haman, Titus, Stalin, Hitler. You could edit them all. If they let you edit it, some controversial figures, they don't let you edit. But you let them. 
We created them. What, what's the secret of this people? Do you know that we don't constitute even one quarter of one percent of humanity? One quarter of one percent of humanity. There are less Jews than a Chinese statistical error on a Chinese census. Figure that out. One wonders about this. The answer is one thing. We didn't always have a homeland, sadly. We didn't always have an army, sadly. We don't have the same culture. We certainly don't agree about things. You can't get two Jews to agree about anything. The one common thread that Jewish people had from the day we stood at Sinai and we left Egypt 3,300 years ago to today, January 2018 is that we maintained and we held on to something called the Torah and the mitzvahs in our daily life. We had the gift of Shabbat and the gift of Jewish education, the gift of Torah and the gift of charity, the gift of mikvah and the gift of mezuzah, the gift of education and the gift of study, the gift of our holidays and the gift of our faith, the gift of prayer and the gift of what we call Yiddishkeit. One could look at it and say, eh, it's not important anymore in today's world. We live in a beautiful democracy. We live in a wonderful country, whether you love the president or you hate the president, or you think he's the best thing for humanity, or you think he's the worst thing for humanity. But you live in a wonderful country. Who, who needs this? But as time goes on, one sees the value of timeless, eternal values that don't change with fads and don't change with anything else. When my father, my father died a number of years ago in 2005, and the next Friday night I was sitting with my family at the Shabbat dinner, and I picked up my cup, my goblet, my becher to make Kiddush on the wine. And as I picked up the cup, as I do every Shabbat, I started to cry. So my son asked me, and my wife asked me, what triggered these tears when you picked up the cup? I said, I'll tell you. My father once told me he grew up in Moscow. This was in the Stalinist, communist era. If you're familiar with a little bit of Soviet history, in 1938 there were famous purgings of Stalin. Stalin killed between 20 and 50 million people during 30 years of reign. His father, my grandfather, his name was Simon Jacobson, and living in Moscow, was arrested, sentenced to death, and then commuted for 25 years in the Gulag. My father told me I was five years old. I was four years old in 1938. My father picked up his cup to make Kiddush. And as he started to say, you know, Yom HaShishi, Kivanu Vacharta, he was doing the Kiddush, there were heavy knocks on the door. Somebody was pounding. And without asking, they broke open the door. And these were agents of the KGB, which was the secret police of the communist regime. And they took my father away to prison. We didn't know where he was for years. Later he was freed, at the end of the war he got out, and they reunited. And my father told me he was holding that Kiddush cup when they came in and they took him away. He was four, his little brother was two, and his mother was left a young, beautiful, as he put it, young, beautiful, gorgeous, living uh, widow who wasn't a widow because she didn't know if her husband was dead or alive. So I said to my children, I said, my father died two weeks ago here in America. And I pick up the Kiddush cup. And as I picked it up, I remembered that story that my father shared with me, the circumstances in which his, his father was arrested when he was four. And I think to myself, 
My grandfather is gone. I never saw him. He died a young man from his tortures in the gulags. My father is now also gone. He was also dead. But I thought, but the Kiddush cup is not gone. The Kiddush cup is here. And with that Kiddush cup, I have my father, I have my grandfather, I have his father, all the way back to Moses. So this is the power of the Jewish tradition. The Kiddush cup, people don't live forever. But what they implant in our hearts, in our minds, in our homes, lives forever. I pick up that Kiddush cup, and suddenly I'm connected to my grandfather in Moscow. I'm connected to a Jew who lived 500 years ago in Spain, to a Jew who lived 1,000 years ago in North Africa or France, to a Jew who lived 2,000 years ago in Italy or in uh, Israel, in the Holy Land, to Rabbi Akiva, to King David, to Moses, who lived thousands of years ago. And suddenly all of history comes to life in my living room, in my dining room. Few things are as powerful as that power, that quality. And you know, my dear friends, you remember the show for the ram's horn? I was once teaching somebody how to blow the chauffeur. So I told him, you take the narrow side and you blow, two, and then the voice comes out from the other side. He was stubborn, and there's people who have to disagree with everything. You know those types of people? <laughs> they just have to disagree. They almost can't help themselves. And uh, he tells me, no, I want to blow from the wide side. I don't want to blow from the narrow side. I said, what do you care? Because I'm not a narrow person. <laughs> I said, okay, that's fine. So he takes the chauffeur, you could try it, he turns it around, takes the wide side, puts it in his mouth, and you know what it sounded like. <laughs> I said, let me show you how to do it. Take the narrow side and go. <laughs> and then I had a flash, aha moment, an epiphany came into my mind, and I realized there's two types of people in this world. There are people, I should say two types of Jews, or two types of people. There are people who say, I'm not narrow, I'm a universalist, I'm not parochial, I'm not going to teach my children about Judaism, we're part of the world, we're mainstream, we're integrated, we're not isolated, fundamentalist, ultra-ultra-orthodox Jews living in a ghetto in Brooklyn, we're part of mainstream culture, we're broad, we're progressive, we're open, we're not narrow. We're going to blow chauffeur from the wide side, from the expansive side. But you know what happens when you blow from the wide side? There's no voice. Because I have no identity. If I try to be everything, I sometimes end up being nothing. It's like somebody once told me, I can't marry one woman. I said, why? He says, I have to be connected to many women. <laughs> I said, what? Well, First of all, don't tell that to your wife. <laughs> it's nice to be friendly with many women and to be acquainted with many women, but there's a certain exclusivity your wife has to feel from you. And if you don't give that to her, this marriage is not going to last. He says, but I'm a universal soul. I'm a free spirit. I said, do you believe that also with your children? Maybe you should give up all of your children for adoption because... You're a father of all children, which was, by the way, in Russia, they did this for a while. Children of the state. 
It doesn't work. If you want your children to be able to love humanity, make sure they have family. The more I am connected to my core, the more I can expand universally. If I blow shofar from the narrow side, if I know who I am as a Jew, then my voice can impact the whole world. The more true you are to your distinctive individuality, the more you can be there for people who are strangers. The less I know who I am, I search for myself everywhere. And it's hard for me to really be a source of inspiration. So if I take my child and I say, listen, I want you to know who you are. You're a Jewish child and I want you to know what that means. That's called blowing shofar from what would seem the narrow side, but the voice can spread far and wide. If it's the other way around, eh, we don't know, we're everything, we're everybody. I don't connect you in a meaningful way to your unique individuality. It's actually something that robs people from their voice. It would be like somebody saying, exclusivity, it's not for me, I love all women. It's the other way around. If you could be loyal to your own, you could be a source of blessing to many other people. If I have no loyalty to anybody, I become flaky. In the name of universality, I sometimes have no distinctive message. A child who doesn't know what family is, it's very hard for him or her to love strangers. If you know your mother, you know your father, you get a lot of love there, then you can expand your influence. That's, I believe, one of the callings of the Jewish people today. We have incredible gifts and resources to give to ourselves and to the world. The world cherishes the Jewish voice because we could be examples of what it is to create a people that is loyal to its citizen coast, its country, and has maintained a very powerful continuum for thousands of years. In order to be able to share our gifts, we need to internalize them first. So I say to all of you, Mazel Tov, congratulations, on your decision, which I know sometimes takes courage, because, I don't know this for a fact, but I can imagine that once in a while somebody smirks at you. Where do you send your kids for Hebrew school? Really? You're also from the crazy ones? You're not afraid that your kid is going to get brainwashed, indoctrinated? And sometimes those are difficult things to deal with because the mockery of a neighbor, of a sister-in-law, of a friend, of a relative is difficult. We are social creatures and we like to get approval of people. And sometimes you need strong principles and says, no, this is good, this is beautiful, this is effective, this is meaningful. These are children who will grow up knowing who they are. And I want to conclude with this scientific experiment that I saw from a French naturalist by the name of Henry Farber. Henry Farber won the Nobel Prize. He was an expert on mammals and insects. And he did an interesting experiment on caterpillars. You know, caterpillars are processionary insects. They follow each other. You can have 300 caterpillars going in a procession head to toe foot but the head of one by the feet of the other one following the leader who's always searching for food mm. and it's very interesting genetically 
The caterpillars love following each other. Henry Farber took a group of caterpillars. He took a flower pot. I'm a visual person. I'm going to do a visual. He takes a flower pot. We're going to have to call this a flower pot. He turns it over. He takes these caterpillars and he manages to get them on the rim of the flower pot going in circles, following each other. Now this was a unique contribution because usually they follow each other in linear line. There's a leader leading them to food. But here they're following each other in a circle, meaning they're not following anybody. They're just going in circles. He takes the food and he puts it in the middle of the flower pot right here. Around 8 inches or 10 inches, a little more, 25 inches from the rib. It's a big flower pot. He waits to see which caterpillar is going to tear itself away from the circle to go get the food. Because they follow processions, but the procession is not getting anywhere. And the food is in the middle. Somebody's going to have to leave the circle. Henry Farber writes this. He watched the caterpillars for seven days. And after seven days, he sadly watched every last caterpillar die from starvation, exhaustion, and dehydration. Nobody left the circle. <coughs> that is how genetically deep the instinct to follow the procession was. They all died. I read this experiment and I thought to myself, is this true about caterpillars or is this also sometimes true about human beings? What do I mean? We are social creatures. We all have our circles. You have your cliques. I have my cliques. We have our circle of friends, our community, people we're comfortable with, people we have a shared language with. The pressure to be in that circle is very, very profound. It's an emotional pressure. I want to feel that I'm normal, that I belong. Sometimes people will sacrifice their source of life and vitality just to be in a circle. I ask somebody, why are you going to this and this party every Thursday night when you know you come home empty, you hate it, a teenager, you hate it, you despise it. Why? He says, I want to be accepted. I want to be able to teach my children to have the courage to be able to look for the food. <laughs> And I don't only mean physical food, I mean emotional food, psychological food, spiritual food. And the truth is, the moment I leave the circle to go to my food, they're following me. Because all the people in the circle are desperately, <laughs> desperately trying to find some fulfillment. It looks like there's a big pressure. People respect people who have an independent mind and have courage to do the right thing, not to do the popular thing. So very often in life, I have to ask ourselves, is my decision being based on the fact that I want to be in the circle? Or is my decision based on the fact that this is going to be a source of nourishment for me? And I have to be able to have the courage at times to say, the circle is beautiful, but I'm going for the food because I want to live. I don't want to die. Too many people sacrifice their happiness, their serenity, their spiritual, psychological, and emotional vitality and vibrancy on the altar of social conformity. They once asked a 104-year-old woman in a newspaper article, what's the value of living to the age of 104? And she said, no peer pressure.
<laughs> but we can't all wait till we will be 104 because people are living till then so there's going to be still a lot of social pressure <laughs> and that's why that's why sometimes the Jewish people had to make this decision in every generation if we would always follow the circle there would be no Jew left today it was always easy to forfeit Judaism and just assimilate. But the Jews always had their eye on the food, literally <laughs> and configuratively. <laughs> but I mean here not literally, but configuratively. You always have to have your eye on what's really meaningful. What are the truest priorities in life? What are you ready to die for? What are you ready to live for? What matters most? Thank you very much. Thank you. We have a few minutes for questions. Yeah. If anybody wants to ask any questions or disagreements, objections, or as good Jews, alternate speeches. We'll start with her. Yeah. Your last story about that. My mom has only, and, and now I find God knows how many times I say that to my kids. If everybody else jumps off a bridge, would you follow? And it's, it's a, it demonstrates it. Obviously. Right. Yeah. The thing is, it's not always as obvious as jumping off a bridge. <laughs> you know what I mean? We tell ourselves that the circle is much more gratifying than the food. So you have to be very honest with your own emotions and your own self-awareness. And be able to say this really is not working for me and it's hard to do that because people say yeah it is working for you it is working for you and say okay it's working for me it's working for me it's not working for me I'm miserable this, this, this person is not doing well it's like even if I'm not miserable I'm empty I'm empty why should I be empty if I could put my if I could put a dollar in a, in, in a CD that's gonna make 25% or is gonna make 1% why should I jip why should I jip myself why should I deprive myself Thank you. Tell my mother-in-law. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. You said to tell the kids the story of the... But kids today, the freedom of America especially, doesn't want to listen to parents anymore. Take them skiing, do it on the slope. 
no, no. You have to commute. Listen, this is where parenting uh, requires a lot of a lot of attentiveness. I mean, you know, uh, we have to communicate with our children, and we have to make rituals and families are very, very important. Uh, fa- parents are responsible to set certain structures in their home for the benefit of the kids. Uh, for example, dinner times, these type of things. One of the values of Shabbat, what's the value of Shabbat? When people, you know, I always tell people, try Shabbat, they say, I'm not orthodox. I said, you really don't have to be orthodox to appreciate the idea that families sit around the table without everybody on their iPhones. It's an amazing thing. These are rituals that are sacred for anybody. <coughs> call yourself an atheist, call yourself an agnostic. Children should sit around the table with mommy and tati without watching a film, without talking <coughs> their friends, without WhatsApping, because without, without that, there's no communication, there's no bonding, there's no family time. So Shabbat is a sacred institution that Judaism provides, and it's extremely valuable. But similar types of things, we have to take responsibility because our children are not going to do it on their own. They're kids. This is where parents come in. And, you know, liberal education does not mean you don't enforce things. It's a mistake that we make. It's, an educa- it's a generation that's focused on therapy and self-awareness and love. You know, we used to get patches. We used to get spanked. They don't do that anymore, right? I don't know what happened. When you were a kid in school, when I was a kid in school, some teachers were pretty uh, harsh. Those times have changed. Okay, thankfully. But sometimes we go to the other extreme. And that is we think children will educate themselves. That's not the case. Children need to be educated by their parents. A lot of research has shown, just like a child who is abused and crushed and mistreated experiences trauma, there is a serious trauma for children who felt absolutely no protection, no discipline. They felt everything is open and loose. They experience a very serious trauma from the sense that they don't know who they are. There's no protection. They don't feel anything solid they can walk on because everything is absolutely loose. So just like when we're overbearing, it's not good. When we detach and we're like, just raise yourself. I don't care what you do. That's a mistake. Uh, Parenthood is all about attentiveness. Attentiveness means kids must have structures. This is right. This is wrong. This is eating time. This is bedtime. This is a proper thing to say. This is an inappropriate thing to say. This is moral. This is immoral. It should be with love, with sensitivity, but it has to be communicated with a certain passion and a certain strength and we all have to figure out and it's hard with all the technology how to create a home in which at least there are times and structures that are set in stone or almost in stone for communication this is a time of sharing it's a time for example family dinners or these things where where we bond um, there's nothing that substitutes the emotional bond between children and parents and sometimes, especially fathers, uh, it's interesting. Uh, the emotional bond between sons and fathers has an incredible impact. And you have to put in a lot of energy into that. It's not a simple thing. It's, it's not easy. It takes, it takes thought, it takes sacrifice, and it takes attentiveness. But children will listen. You just have to be creative and not give up. 
and not pick up your hands and say there's nothing to do, they're a bunch of spoiled brats. That's not the case. They're spoiled brats because we spoil them. Don't spoil them, they won't be spoiled brats. A, 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 a woman came to me and she says her son watches television four and a half hours a night. So I say, I'm going to ask a stupid question. Maybe you get rid of the TV. She says, I can't. There's going to be a revolt in the house. They'll burn the house down. I said, are you ever at Costco or in a store and your son here wants to buy some, uh, some treat? She says, of course, constantly. Now they keep kosher. So I say, what do you do? Do you buy it? She says, well, I look if it has a, like OU, a kosher sign. And if not, I say not. And if yes, yes. I say, what happens if you see in the ingredients is pork? And what happens then? I tell my child, we can't eat it. And what does he do? Does he make a ruckus? She says, no. I say, why not? Why doesn't he make a ruckus? Why doesn't he start screaming and hollering? She says, because he knows I won't change my mind. I said, you see? <laughs> Children are smart. They know what you're serious about and what you're not serious about. Hey, no, you're not going to feed your kid pork. For whatever reason. For whatever reason. He knows he could scream for four hours in Costco. I want it, I want it, I want it. You're not going to feed it. When it comes to ice cream before dinner, he knows. You may say, my bubala, ice cream is really not good for you. They have all this research about ice cream. First eat green beans, and then cucumbers, and a little quinoa, and a little spinach. And afterwards, you'll have ice cream. He says, no. We're going to have the ice cream now. And he drives you so much sugar, you give in and he has the ice cream now. Why? And the answer is because he knows that deep down you're not so against ice cream before dinner. You know how he knows it? Because you have ice cream before dinner. So how evil, malicious, devilish, sadistic, barbaric, barbaric abominable, repulsive can ice cream before dinner be when mommy does it every time she breaks her diet <laughs> so it can't be that bad right so kids are very very sensitive i should add one little detail and that is the quality of a marriage impacts the children very profoundly homes in which mommy and tati get along creates a certain energy in the home that is very very helpful for children there's no guarantees in this world but when there's a lot of fighting in the house or mistrust or hatred or anger that's not dealt with, it's often expressed in children's behavior very profoundly. I know a couple came to me, beautiful people, and the children are just, they say obnoxious things to the father constantly. Why you're home? Don't tell me what to do. Who needs you here? Uh, the father comes in, he says, good evening, they don't answer, how are you, they don't answer, you know how kids are, it's like, it's like one of the worst things to tell them good evening, how are you, uh, and they have to answer. And, and it was very strange, why? And I suggested something, you know, I told the mother, do you like your husband? And she says, no, I hate him. Uh, are you angry at him? I'm furious at him. I said, all your children are doing is, they're communicating to your husband what you repress. They're feeling it, and, and they're feeling it from you, and they're communicating it to your husband. You don't say it because you're a nice lady and you keep it in. And, and the more you work on this with your husband, you have to work out what is going on, why are you so angry at him? And, and, and it'll automatically reflect in your children. But we have to realize that, that 
the qualities of our own marriages are very, very profoundly relevant to the quality of our children's growing up. It's sometimes better that parents make a mistake together than they argue even if one is saying the right thing. In other words, if my wife is going in one direction, I'm going in the opposite direction. Even if I'm right or she's right, the results, I assume, are more damaging than if we both are on the same page doing the wrong thing. (laughs) Because being on the same page is very, very conducive to create a home that is much more holistic. Children feed off the disparity between parents. There's a leak, and they right away seize that leak. When we come together as a team, we're creating a home. We're creating family time. We're creating a structure. We're creating bedtime. We're creating a unity in the home, and we're on one team. We may make mistakes, but we're on one team. It's much more powerful. We'll take another question of yours. Yes. What would you say are the top, I know there's so many different Jewish values, but the top 10 or so Jewish values, and what, what, what are the ones that would differentiate them from the universal values that you say that still want the children? That's a good question. You want the top 10 Jewish values? Whoa. And how long do I have for this? 60 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. I'll share with you a few, uh, I'll, but I'm first going to answer your other good. How you differentiate them from universal values? I think Jewish values today, the West, the West in many ways, a lot of its values are based on Judaism, what they call Judaic Christian values, etc. So sometimes it's not so easy to distinguish, because in many ways, remember, Judaism is the father of all monotheistic faiths. If you read. Uh, the Irish writer, he wrote a book called The Gifts of the Jews. Uh, Thomas, Thomas Cohill is an Irish historian, a non-Jew. He wrote The Gifts of the Jews. He has a line there, fascinating line, and he says this. He says, some of our favorite words with which we wake up every morning, and he goes through a list. Happiness, future, promise, history, ethics, morality, right and wrong, meaning, purpose, destiny, okay, transformation, repentance, recreation, these are his choices, are all Jewish words, meaning they're not inherent to science. Science can't speak about psychological transformation. It's out of the realm of science. Science can describe, right, DNA, or molecules, or atomic structures, based on its observation. Talk about future, destiny, purpose, meaning, human dignity, values, choice. Pagan cultures didn't have these things. So he says, these were Jewish inventions, and he said, today, you can't think without them. (laughs) Nobody thinks without the word dignity, purpose, values. He was trying to prove how the impact of Judaism is beyond what anybody even knows. It's not the menorah on Hanukkah in the streets. That's a culture thing. That's a mitzvah. But it's basically the very fabric of understanding human civilization. There's a concept. So that's, that's just a general, a general observation. I think an important observation that many Jews don't realize. Uh, 
Which is why it's sad when Jews don't realize what they have in Judaism. <laughs> we run, <laughs> we run to India <laughs> to find spirituality. <laughs> we run to Buddhism to find uh, mindful meditation. We run to other places to find uh, serenity. And sometimes other sources can help us. But the, the value embedded in Judaism is incredibly profound. Now to address your other question, I'll just do for two minutes uh, some things that come to mind about uh, top ten values in Judaism. I would say number one is the day you were born is the day that God declared that the world cannot be complete without you. That's probably one of the most powerful values of Judaism. The day you were born is the day that God declared that the world cannot be a complete place without you. You were conceived in love. You are an ambassador of love, light, and hope. Your life is a mission and a purpose. Your soul was sent down to fulfill something that nobody else ever did and nobody else ever will. Every moment of your life is indispensable. And your life is an indispensable component of the cosmic divine symphony. You getting this? Okay. That, I would say, is one of the key values of Judaism, which translates in hundreds of branches. It's the core of self-esteem. It's the core of empowerment. That's a great value. Another value is we have responsibility. God cares about what you do. <laughs> That's a major value of Judaism, and it's not a universal value. What you do matters, not only to your mom, right? And not only because the police will catch you, but it matters to history, it matters to the creator of the world. Let me tell you, if every public school would teach this, the violence in public schools would go down by 95%. When, when uh, what was that kid who shot the 26 kids in Connecticut? Adam, Adam Lindsay? They said he was autistic, he was Asperger's. We right away go, he has a mental challenge. We all have siblings or relatives who are Asperger's, who are autistic. They don't shoot kids. We have relatives who are bipolar, sadly, schizophrenic, have clinical depression. They don't shoot 26 children in the mouth. You know why? Besides certain mental illnesses which are extreme, mental illness doesn't turn you into a murderer because they have values. They were educated that life is the most holiest thing and you are responsible. Somebody cares, it's not just the police. I can get away from the police, who cares? I can kill myself, who cares? He kills himself afterwards. There's a real value to your life that is absolute. It's not just for kids. This is Judaism says it, but I wish every child would learn this. It's a mistake that we confuse liberal education with eliminating any mention of the absolute value of human behavior. It's a sad mistake that modern Americans have made. Because children who don't have this, there's no real reason you're giving them not to be criminals. Besides, you're going to end up in prison. And if a person is suffering from depression, I don't care. I'll kill myself too. This doesn't guarantee that there's no violence, but I think it reduces it very significantly. So that's another major value 
You matter. God cares about what you do. Every moment counts. Your actions matter. That's a second value. A third value, a third major value in Judaism is we are responsible to the world. We're not just isolated creatures. We have in Aleinu the prayer, Lesaken Olam B'Malchus Shindalid Yud. We are stewards, we are co-partners with God in creation of the universe. It's a partnership. He created the world, we're supposed to repair the world. And each one of us has one corner to repair. Social activism, being there, making the world a better place, a place of goodness and kindness is inherent to Jewish values. Inherent. I can't just be apathetic. They once asked a Jew what's the difference between ignorance and apathy, and he said, I don't know and I don't care. Uh, I think another major value is connection to family, marriage and children, which I spoke about before. Today, more and more people are saying, why in the world should I get married? <laughs> Who needs it? 50% divorce rate. Why do I need the headache? And even if I'm married, why children? I don't need these headaches. They drive you crazy. A dog, a puppy, is much easier. No Hebrew school, no tuition expenses, no college, no Harvard, no Brown, no Yale. And he comes into bed and he listens. He listens. I'm like my bratty 13-year-old. Clean up the kitchen. Who are you to tell me to clean up the kitchen? That's why you hire a maid to clean up the kitchen. Your puppy doesn't do that. Right? Somebody told me I have a puppy and a television. That's good enough. <laughs> And the same is true with marriage. What, what do I need a relationship for? It used to be before the 1960s, if you wanted to have uh, sex, you had to get married. But today, it's much worse when you get married. <laughs> right? A woman once said, before I was married, I was incomplete. Now I'm married, I'm finished. <laughs> Woody Allen, the great Kabbalist, says, marriage is the death of hope. So people say, what do I need it for? Let me be a free... I once asked Jackie Mason. You know Jackie Mason? He, he repeats a lot of my jokes. So I once asked him... I once asked him... I met him once. I once asked him if he regrets never getting married. He's a Jewish guy. He used to be a rabbi. If he regrets never getting married, he never got married. He says, no, my father used to say marriage is an institution. I never wanted to be institutionalized. <laughs> Why should I be institutionalized? He tells me, Jackie Mason tells me, he says, Rabbi Jacobson, I want to go out from the house for 10 minutes. She says, where are you going? I don't want to have to tell somebody where I'm going. It's none of your business. I don't even know where I'm going. Where are you going? I'm going to buy a newspaper, for heaven's sake. Can I come with you? <laughs> Why don't you invite me? He says, this is not for me. Okay, he was doing a Jackie Mason routine on Me Too, even though it was a private conversation, because Jackie Mason can't help himself. he got to be Jackie Mason. But the point is, why do I need this? Why do I then have to go to marriage therapy for eight years to figure out our differences? Let me date, let me enjoy romance with friends, and that's it. That's it. I'll take women out for dinner. What do I have to get married to them? What do I have to get married to a husband and deal with his attitudes and his mother and his father and his brothers and his sisters and bar mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs and brothers-in-law and sisters-in-law and Passover and Thanksgiving? You've made the wrong cranberry sauce. I don't need this. And this is the, and the, what's the answer to this? The answer to this is that in Genesis there's a verse where God says it's not good for man to be alone. Part of the purpose of creation is to enter into a relationship and build a future because that is what challenges us to become the best people we're capable of becoming.
course it's hard. Having children is hard. But these are values. These are values that have to be taught. They're not natural. People think they're natural. It's like a credit card. You could live off credit. How long could you live off credit cards without having any money? Anybody ever tried? <laughs> so the experts, the experts say three years. Three years you can do it. After three years, it catches up from too many sides. Three years you can do it. A lot of times, and I'm, I'm saying this way, America, America has had a lot of Judaic values instilled to it, and now we're living off the credit card. But that goes for three generations. The fourth generation, you can't live off credit. You've got to have your own money. Our grandpa- most of our grandparents, three generations back, were deeply connected to Judaism. We're still living off the credit cards. Our children aren't going to be able to live off the credit cards anymore. They're going to have to make their own money, meaning they're going to have to have their own connection. We don't realize we can go three generations without believing anything our grandparents believed in because we're living over their credit by osmosis. That's how it works. But the next generation will not, unless they create their own connection. That's the challenge of the new generation today, because it's now not anymore three generations. And that's why the four sons in the Haggadah are four generations of Jews. The first generation of immigrants were called the wise children. The second generation were the rebellious children. The third generation had grandparents who were very Jewish and parents who were rebellious, so they got confused. And the fourth generation is the fourth child. He doesn't know what to ask. He's not confused anymore. He says, I don't even know what you want. So the idea of family, children, is another major family value. Another major, another major Jewish value is Shabbat. Shabbat is basically that everything has to pause once a week to celebrate life and love. Very powerful value. And this shouldn't be taken for granted. It should not be taken for granted. They once asked one of the greatest pianists in history. He was in Carnegie Hall. And they asked him, what, uh, another pianist said, what sets you apart from me? I also play piano beautifully. I also know how to read notes exceptionally. What's the difference? And he said, the pauses. I know when to pause and how long to pause. It's never the notes, it's the pauses. If any of you speaks, you know, more important than the words are the pauses. The pauses. (laughs) I made my point, I rest my case. The pauses are not noticeable. You can't teach somebody to pause, but the pause is more important than anything else. In piano, it's the same way. Shabbat is the pause. Now, what are you doing when you pause? What are you doing? Come on, come on. It's the pause that allows life to sink in. If I never stop, uh, right? Even the treadmill says downtime. If I never pause, nothing sinks in. Nothing goes in. It's just, I'm working, I'm working more money, which is, it's good to work. And we need to work. Somebody got to pay the bills around here. But uh, Shabbos is a pause. It's the pause to internalize life, to spend 24 hours with yourself. This is a very profound value. People don't realize how powerful it is. Another major Jewish value is tshuva. Tshuva means repentance. Every mistake has to be seen as an opportunity. There's always something positive in mistakes I did. What's positive? I know my way forward. When you do ways, right? Right? So men don't like listening to instructions. Ways tells you make a right. I told the director of ways, don't have a woman's voice talking. 
because men think it's their wife and they won't listen. She's not going to tell me what to do. What does ways do when you take the wrong, the wrong turn? It doesn't say, oh, you're such a shmageggy. You're such a shma I mean, you're such an idiot. You're a moron. You're a lost case. I'm done with you. Waze just says, recalculate, and they'll find a new way. Yeah, that's a very Jewish concept. You took a wrong path. You didn't listen. Okay. Okay. You made a mistake. You have to be remorseful. But now, we got to figure out the way forward. That's what tshuva is. It's a very powerful value in life. Mistakes are springboards for rediscovery. I'll finish off with one more, uh, <laughs> one more Jewish value, and that is the idea of faith. That in every situation, in every single situation in life, I'm not alone. I'm never ever alone. I'm never ever just a victim of circumstances. God is always holding my hand and walking with me wherever I end up. I never end up in places. I'm taken to places. I never end up in a mess. I was taken to the mess in order to bring some order there. That's a very powerful Jewish body. I think this is some uh, 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 an opening list. Seven. <laughs> what do you want? Seventy? No, 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 no. Okay. It's a good blog entry. What? You can put it on your blog. No, no. This is this is a good question. It's it's actually a good title for a book. The ten most important Jewish values. Okay. Thank you very very much, and have a wonderful day. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.